Let's pray as we open God's Word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is living and active, that You speak to us. And so we pray this morning that You would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You'd guide my lips as I speak to Your people this morning. In Your name we pray. Amen. Every once in a while, I, uh, as a dad, I wouldn't say I force, but I cajole, cajole my boys, my kids, to, so that we would watch uh, some old movie that I appreciated as a kid. Now, that's not always gone well. There have been times where I have forgotten aspects of movies. Maybe some of you have shared that uh, experience. But not too many years ago, uh, we, we watched the original The Karate Kid. Uh, it was a great movie when I was a kid, loved it. And some of you will know, maybe more and more, the older I get, I guess more of you have not watched it. It came out in 1984. So, um, but The Karate Kid is a story about uh, Daniel Russo, LaRusso, who moves with his mom from New Jersey across the country to Los Angeles, California. And he finds himself early on in the story being uh, beat up, bullied by a group of boys who are in a, a, a local karate dojo. They, they're learning karate and they... I uh, love using that to, to beat on, pick on people. And so he finds himself uh, being beat up. And one particular time at night, he's, he's being beat up by these boys. And this mysterious figure shows up and, and beats off the boys. And he discovers that it's the eccentric uh, handyman at the apartment complex where him and his mom live, Mr. Miyagi. And he begs Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate, to teach him the things that he, he used to, to defeat these boys who were picking on him. And uh, after a bunch of resistance, eventually Mr. Miyagi says, okay, but we're going to do this, and then you're going to fight uh, in the karate tournament. That's the place to use this. So anyways, it begins. And then Daniel's training begins. And if you've watched the movie, it begins with Mr. Miyagi giving him a bunch of work to do. First, he, he has to wax and polish a number of really beautiful old cars, right? Wax on, wax off, wax on. Wax off. And I don't remember the order of the other things, but you know, he did paint the fence and paint the house and, and sand the floor. And, and there's this scene uh, where Daniel is so frustrated with Mr. Miyagi. He's like, when are you going to teach me karate? I'm just a slave doing all this work for you. And he's, he's angry and he's expressing that to Mr. Miyagi. And in that moment, Mr. Miyagi says, I want you to show me. Show me wax on, wax off. And so... Daniel, he's got a bad attitude, but he shows him, do it properly, wax on, wax off, show me sand the floor, show me paint the fence, show me paint the house, and then suddenly he starts striking, Mr. Miyagi does, and, and he shows Daniel that all these movements that he's been teaching him are in fact karate uh, blocking maneuvers, right, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, paint the, the fence and the house, you didn't know I knew karate, right, like, all of a sudden it dawns on Daniel that all that he has been doing actually is really practical, that it applies to what he's doing. It's not, it's not just work, it's not just theory. Here he's learned to apply these, these things to muscle memory, and now he's suddenly realizing the practical impact, that the, where the rubber hits the road, that these things actually are part of his training. We've been walking through the letter to the Philippians for a while, and in the text that we come to today, the beginning of chapter 4, we come to a place where the text gets incredibly practical. All the things that Paul has been talking about, everything he's been 
he's been saying, writing to the Philippians, this is not mere theory. This is not the equivalent for Daniel, just a bunch of menial stuff that he's slaving away at. No, this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. This, this applies to our lives in really tangible ways, and we will discover that together this morning. This is where the rubber hits the road. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been together in this letter. Uh, we, we've gone through Easter, and I was away last week for my oldest son's grad in B.C. And so I want to remind you, as we enter into this final chapter of the letter to the Philippians, this final stretch of this sermon series, I want to remind you of some things so that we, we get our bearings again going into this. Paul is writing to a church that he planted about 12 years earlier. It was the very first church planted in Europe. Uh, Paul and his companions were on, in a place called Troas, on the east edge of the Aegean Sea. They had tried to go in a number of different directions, and the text in the book of Acts tells us that God had prevented those things from happening. And then in Troas, Paul has a dream. He sees a, a man from Macedonia who cries out, come over and help us. And so Paul and his companions uh, set sail from the, the east coast of the Aegean Sea across the sea, and they come to Philippi where Paul establishes this church. Paul, in this letter, is addressing two primary issues in the church. One is that because of their faith in Jesus, they are beginning to experience external opposition, pressure, and that's bringing with it suffering. And so he is addressing that issue. And the second issue he's addressing is uh, that within the church, there is some relational discord, some tension. Not full-blown conflict, but there is tension. And so he's addressing that in the matter of church unity. Remember that as Paul writes this letter, not all is well for him. He is imprisoned in Rome. He is awaiting trial before Caesar. Uh, not certain of how things will go. He anticipates that he will be set free, but he doesn't know for sure. And so he, he says that no matter what happens, he wins. No matter what happens, it's good. If he is executed, then he gets to be with Jesus. And if he is freed, then he gets to continue serving Jesus. So either way, it doesn't matter. So he's writing from those circumstances. Throughout, Paul has been calling the Philippians, these believers, he's been calling them to unity, to oneness, and he's been calling them to courage that, that, that in the face of, of suffering, in the face of opposition, they would strive boldly for the advance of the gospel. We come now to chapter 4, the final uh, chapter, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read from God's Word. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and, my, and, my, and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Udia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are are in the book of life. I want to ask four questions with you in the time that we have together. First question is, who is Paul addressing? Second question is, what is happening? What's going on? Third, what is Paul's appeal? And fourth, how does this apply? Who is he addressing? What's going on? Uh, what is Paul's appeal and how does this apply? We begin with who is Paul addressing? And there are several answers to this question because Paul actually, there's, I would say, there are three uh, distinct addressees that we recognize here. 
three different appeals, each addressed differently. First, as we might expect, Paul addresses the church as a whole. Remember, he's been writing to the believers, to the Christians, those who are disciples of Jesus in Philippi from the beginning. Remember back in Philippians 1.1, some of you who are with us, it begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. He's, he's been writing to the whole church, and so he begins here, he, he addresses one of the addressees as the whole church. He's just continued what he's been doing. No surprise there. And, and he says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, these words remind us again of, of the deep, intimate friendship Paul has with this church. He, he planted this church. He knows these believers, some of them at least, those who were there from the beginning. He, he spent time with them. He, he's eaten with them. He's laughed with them. He's cried with them. He, he loves them. Contrary to what is the case in some of Paul's letters where he's writing to believers that he doesn't know, here he knows and loves these believers. And he speaks of that, those whom I love and long for. He's in prison. They're going through hard times. And you might recall from the beginning of the letter, Paul wants to go and be with them to help them progress in their faith, to deal with, walk through the challenges that are before them. You whom I love and long for, this kind of love, of course, is to characterize every church, is to characterize our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus himself said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. And then listen to this. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Like, that's a high bar. But that's the kind of love that is to shape our community. As Christ has loved us, so we are to love one another. When the church is not characterized by love, the church is failing to be who she is and who she's called to be. Paul loves them. He longs for them to be able to be with them, to help them progress in their faith and in their joy. Uh, Paul, Paul refers to this church as his joy and his crown. Now, certainly they are his joy now already in the present. Uh, they bring him great joy. He loves them and there's joy there. But Paul is thinking of the future. That's what he means when he speaks of they, they are my crown. They are his reward. Paul is thinking of the eschaton. He's thinking of that time when Christ returns and they all stand together in the presence and the glory of Christ and Paul will be there and he'll see his brothers and sisters from Philippi. And, and that will be a great reward for him. That's what he's saying. He is filled with joy. They are his joy because of what he anticipates. They are his joy because they are his crown. So first, Paul addresses the whole church. But in verse 2, things shift. Look with me at verse 2. He, he says, I plead with Udia and I plead with Syntyche. That, that is quite a, a, quite a unique moment in the letter to the Philippians. Paul has been writing to the whole church, and, and Paul will continue writing to the church as a whole. But here, for a moment, Paul speaks to two specific women in this congregation, Eudia and Syntyche. This is highly unusual for Paul. Apart from greetings and the occasional mention of some of his co-workers, Paul rarely mentions anyone specifically by name. So why does he do, do so here? Well, contrary to what is the norm in our culture, where we happily name the guilty, 
I mean, just look at the papers or social media, right? When someone is guilty of something, we, we're happy to identify the bad ones, to shame people, to throw stuff all over the place. But Paul is not singling out these women because they're the bad ones. He's, he's not trying to shame them. In fact, one scholar says one of the marks of enmity, that is if there's hostility towards someone and you're writing a letter like this, is that the enemies are left unnamed, thus denigrated to anonymity. You, you didn't name your, you didn't give them that, that honor of naming them. And so, so he's just making the point that Paul's not singling them out to shame them or because somehow they're the bad ones. Clearly they're having a problem. We'll get to that. But, but Paul references them by name, it's, it's actually evidence of friendship. He speaks of them as being co-workers uh, with him in the work of the gospel. Verse 3, he says, Since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So Paul addresses the whole church. Here in verse 2, he, he turns and he addresses these two specific women who are laboring for the gospel with him. And there's one other addressee. Look at verse 3. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Uh, this is obviously another individual who's been singled out but not named. Paul is asking this person, this uh, true companion, to, to help Udia and to help Syntyche with whatever issue they have between them that needs to be dealt with. Now, we're not, we're not told who this is, and we can't say definitively who it is, but we can rule out a few people, and, and I will offer uh, what is just a guess. But, but Paul calls this person my true companion. Clearly, it's someone who has spent time with Paul in ministry. Uh, we know that uh, this person cannot be Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is with Paul as Paul dictates this letter. Epaphroditus will bring this letter from Paul back to the church, so this person is... is Already there, it's not Epaphroditus, and it's not Timothy, who Paul says he's going to send to the church soon. One possible candidate is that this is Luke, the author of Luke's Gospel in the book of Acts. Uh, the reason I suggest some of you might be familiar, if you read the book of Acts closely, there are what we call the we passages. right? The author of, of Acts, at points, is using, sorry to get into grammar, third-person pronouns, he, they, and then there are other times where he shifts and all of a sudden it's we. And clearly the author is for portions of Paul's journeys uh, and his mission with Paul, and, and it shifts back and forth. Well, one of the places where we read we is the night when Paul had his vision in Troas of a man from Macedonia come over. Then it says, we set sail. So the author of the book of Acts is with Paul at that point. And when Paul leaves Philippi, it's he, they again. And it's he, they, all the way up to chapter 20 when Paul returns to Philippi where it becomes we again. So it's entirely possible that Luke, who has been a companion with Paul, a co-worker with Paul, was left in Philippi, that he has been there, and that, that this is Paul saying, hey, Luke, help these women. Now, we don't know for sure. I find that interesting. Maybe you don't, but, but anyways. Paul has addressed this third individual, my true companion. That's who Paul addresses, the whole church. He addresses Judea and Syntyche, and he addresses his true companion, whoever that individual is. Second question, what is going on? What is happening? Uh, we know what's going on, broadly speaking. We've been camped out in this letter for a while. The two main issues I already talked about. Externally, there is opposition. There is pressure on the Philippian believers. Remember, they, 
they live in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, this, uh, is this city that has been given this special status as a colony of Rome. They, they've received Roman citizenship. So this is a, a colony that is very pro-Rome. And as was the custom, uh, the people of Philippi and, and others in the empire would ascribe uh, of Caesar, they would speak of Caesar as Lord. Well, for these men and women who put their faith in Jesus, they, they realize, no, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so likely it's around their loyalty to Jesus, their refusal to participate in claiming uh, lordship to Caesar, that they are facing opposition in this very pro-Rome colony. And so they are suffering because of that. The second issue is this internal tension, relational discord, disharmony. So with those two things in mind, we ask, so what's the deal with Udia and Syntyche? What, what's happening? Now, the, the truth is we don't know. We are not told, and so we can't say definitively. There clearly was something that was happening between them, a disagreement of some kind. But here's the reality. The, Udia and Syntyche knew what was going on, and the Philippian church knew what was going on. They, they understood what was happening. We are in the position of listening. If you've ever listened into someone else having a phone conversation where you only hear half the conversation, that's, that's our experience here. As we read this, we, we read only Paul's response. We, we don't know what's going on. We don't hear that. And, and obviously, God in his uh, wisdom, we, we don't need to know the particular details or he would have given it to us in his word. And Paul doesn't mention it because they already all knew it. He simply references that there is this issue. So we know there's a conflict, a disagreement. There's this relational tension between these women. And I would add this, because I don't know what you've heard in the past. It's not just some petty personal quarrel between two women. That conclusion is, Gordon Fee says, that that's just male chauvinism, pure and simple. Uh, Paul has identified these women, uh, Yudia and Syntyche, as, as co-workers in the gospel. And, and so, so whatever exactly the details of this dispute are, it, it clearly centers in some way on the role that the Philippian believers are supposed to be living out as ambassadors for the gospel. It, it, it's perhaps about how best to advance the gospel in Philippi, perhaps what it looks, for them, looks like for them to stand firm for the gospel, but some gospel issue here is almost certainly at the heart of this dispute, this tension, this problem between these two women. Third question, what is Paul's appeal? Should say, really, what are Paul's appeals? Because he makes... Three, the one to my true companion to help these women, but I want to focus on the other two. Let's begin with Paul's appeal to the church. He writes in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I know I've said this before, and maybe some of you will get irritated at me one time, but whenever we see a therefore, we need to ask why the therefore is therefore, right? So clearly what Paul is about to say connects to what has just been said, what's come before. Not only that, but here Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, which also points to what he has just said previously. So let's look at what we've walked through in chapter 3. Remember, the Philippians receive this, and, and they don't all have a copy of Philippians. They don't take it home and read a few verses or a chapter for their personal devotions. This is a letter that goes to the church. They gather corporately. It's read aloud, the whole thing. So just because uh, we haven't looked at chapter 3 for a few weeks now, and just because we walk through chapter 3 in, in bits, 
they would be, this would be fresh in their mind. They just read chapter 3, they just read through the letter, and they came to our text. So the therefore and the stand firm in this way points to what he's just said. What happened in chapter 3? Chapter 3 begins with Paul uh, calling his brothers and sisters to rejoice in the Lord, and then he warns them, remember? And and he says, hey, no problem, I'm happy to remind you of this again. It's something he's told them before. And and then he, he, uh, he speaks about, he denounces those that we could call Judaizers, those who put confidence in the flesh, those who put confidence, say that, hey, coming to Christ is is good, but you also need to observe, you need to practice these Jewish boundary markers uh, like male circumcision. That's clearly one of the pressing issues. Likely this group, if you've been with us, are not in the church in Philippi, but this thinking, this group of people, uh, they threaten the church here. And so Paul's warning them. He, he says, you, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He, he's speaking to the issue that there are people who are putting confidence in in things that they do, not only in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Yeah, the, the cross is good, but you also, if you're a male, you need to be circumcised, would, would have been one of the issues. And then Paul, remember, Paul says, you know, if anyone had, has, has reason for confidence, it's me. And he goes over his religious pedigree, his religious performance, he points to that. And then he says, but all of that that I used to value, I count as rubbish, as dung, as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, of being found in Him, of receiving from God this gift of righteousness that comes to us by grace, apart from works. This is the good news proclaimed in Scripture. This is the Gospel. If you're with us and you're not a believer in Jesus, let me just say that Christianity is not uh, about self-help. It is not about us cleaning ourselves up, making ourselves acceptable to God. It is about receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness. It is about the grace of Christ who bore the penalty for our sins. That When we trust in Him, we are washed clean and clothed with His perfection. It is out of that place, our our new life in Christ that we are called to obey, that that Christ fills us with the Spirit and He transforms us. Our lives are where to grow, but, but it's never that we do those things in order to be accepted, in order to be loved. It's because we're loved, because we're accepted, because we're forgiven and pure and holy in Christ that and filled with His Spirit that we can learn and grow into who we already are in Christ. So hear that. If you have never put your faith in Jesus, you don't, you don't have to make yourself acceptable. You simply need to come like the rest of us and say, I am spiritually bankrupt. I am without hope apart from you, Jesus. And receive His grace. And receive this gift of righteousness. Be found in Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Him, His love, and His grace. Subsequently, Paul expresses to the Philippians his burning desire to know Christ more fully. He knows Christ already, but his eyes, he knows that one day he will know Christ fully. One day he will stand before him in glory. And and that pursuit, 
that vision drives Paul. Remember, he uses the metaphor of, of a race, of running. He says, forgetting what is behind, I press on towards the goal, straining every muscle. He, his eyes are fixed on Jesus, the goal of knowing Christ fully. His eyes are fixed on heaven. He says, don't, don't follow the example of those who, whose eyes are set on earthly things, but follow my example, the example of others who are running like me. He presses on, he strains towards the goal, eyes set on Christ, knowing him fully in heaven. And he's been calling the, the Philippians to that. He's been reminding them, telling them, you are a colony of heaven living in the midst of this pagan colony of Philippi. Live as citizens of heaven, with your eyes fixed on heaven, pursuing the goal of knowing Christ fully. That's what Paul's been calling them to. That is what he's just said to them as we come to verse 1 of our passage today when he says to them, stand firm in the Lord in this way. In, in this way. In, in this way means pressing towards the goal. Eyes fixed on Christ. Straining towards heaven. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Even if it means suffering, no matter what pressure, no matter what opposition, keep running after Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on heaven and Christ and the glory that awaits when you will stand before Him, when we will stand there together. Paul's second appeal is to Judea and to Syntyche. And here his appeal echoes what he has been saying to the Philippians as a whole church that they would be of, the, of the, the same mind in the Lord. That there would be agreement, that there would be unity, that there would be oneness, that they would be together for the gospel. Do you remember, remember chapter 2? Where, where Paul told the Philippians he wanted them to be like-minded. He wanted them to to have the same love for one another that Christ had for them, that He wanted them to be one in the Spirit, that He wanted them to be of one mind, that He wanted them to value others above themselves, that He wanted them to look to the interests of others ahead of their own interests. That He, he said in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, in the church, with your brothers and sisters, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who humbled himself, who left heaven, who became a slave, who obeyed even going to the cross. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's been saying to the Philippians throughout this letter. And here we are confronted by the fact that these words are not merely words. This isn't Paul trying to fill space in his scroll this isn't about me just filling time on a Sunday morning. This gets real practical. This is where the rubber hits the road. Here Paul is calling upon these two women, Judea and Syntyche, to do what he's been calling them all to do. Something that they've evidently failed to do. There is this relational strife, this, this conflict, this discord between them. And it's, it's hurting their ability as a church to live on mission for Christ, to advance the gospel in Philippi. And, and so he calls on these two women to, to do what he's been calling them all to do, to, to illustrate before the watching congregation 
what it means to humble yourself like Christ, to, to love others like Christ loved us, to put the interests of others ahead of your own interests, to value them ahead of you, to, to have the same mindset of Christ. He said, he pleads with them. He says, please, be of the same mind. Paul's third appeal is to his true companion, possibly Luke, to help these two women, to encourage them, to walk with them, to call them to humble themselves, to call them to put the interests of others and of the mission ahead of their own agendas, to love the other as Christ has loved them, to sacrificially serve as Christ sacrificially served and gave himself for us. Not, not just because, but for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. This community of believers, this church, is a colony of heaven, an outpost of the future living in pagan Philippi. And, and they are to live as that, live as Christ's ambassadors, and, and bear whatever, whatever suffering they might that might come proclaiming in word and deed the good news of God's great love and God's great offer of mercy through Christ, through his death, life, death, and resurrection. I remember my early days here at Sunrise, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Sunrise went through a split about 18 months before Christine and I arrived and I remember there were, there were days in those early years where, where I, I, I didn't feel like I could invite someone else to be here because, because of the tension, because of the conflict, because our failure to love one another, our failure to sacrifice for one another hinders the advance of the gospel. It stops us from being who we're called to be. And that's what's going on in Philippi, and it threatens to get worse if it's not dealt with. So Paul pleads with Eudia and Syntyche. He pleads with his true companion to help them. So fourth question, how does this apply to us? This call towards unity to have the same mind, to love like Christ loves is not merely theoretical. There's there's a number of things that can be said. I want to focus in two directions. First, let's consider the appeal to the whole church in verse 1. We need to hear Paul's words. They are called to stand firm in the Lord in this way. He's writing to believers who are facing opposition, who are facing suffering, persecution that may get worse. They're suffering because they're disciples of Jesus. And I want you to note this. Paul does not bemoan their circumstances. This is significant. As they live faithfully for Jesus, they are facing opposition. They are facing suffering. And Paul does not bemoan their circumstances. In fact, he has just made the point that when they suffer because of their faith in Jesus, Jesus uses even that to conform them into Christ's likeness. That they are participating in Christ's suffering, being shaped into his image. So Paul does not bemoan their circumstances, the the context in which they live in their city. 
No, his focus is elsewhere. He is straining towards the goal of heaven. He's straining towards the prize of knowing Christ in all fullness. And to that end, Paul's eyes are fixed, not on earthly things, but on heaven, on Christ. Paul's appeal to them is to stand firm in the Lord in this way. So that's a word to us. What does it mean for us at sunrise? What does it mean for you and for me to be pursuing Christ, to have our eyes fixed on eternity, to fix our eyes on what is to come and not on earthly things? Because we need to do that too. Whatever the the situation is around us politically, there are too many, I would contend, I say this humbly, there are too many in the church who are too worried about losses of freedom and those things going on around externally. I don't want us to lose our freedom. I'm deeply alarmed at some of the things I see happening in Canada, but those are not the main things. Our eyes are to be fixed on Christ, pursuing Him, pursuing heaven, and, and making the gospel known where we are. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, fixed on the prize, running towards the prize. Second point of application arises from Paul's appeal to Judea and Syntyche. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Here are two women who love Jesus. Here are two women who are co-workers with Paul for the gospel. But something has gone wrong. Something has gone off the rails. Differences of opinion, personal agendas, pride. We, we, we don't know the specifics. But whatever it is, it's infected their relationship. And, and it, it threatens to distract this whole church and certainly them from the, the, the call to advance the gospel in pagan Philippi. I said we'd come back to the sunrise story. When I first interviewed here a long time ago, Sunrise had gone through a painful, divisive split. The, the disagreement was described to me as being about philosophy of, of ministry, that those who left wanted to focus on evangelism, that those who stayed wanted to focus on discipleship. I might have looked like a deer in headlights. Pretty sure we're supposed to do both of those. But I remember coming in here, there was so much pain so much woundedness that, that I, was, I was very acutely aware that, that even the word evangelism felt like it would be a bad word to say initially in those early days. I soon discovered that the problems lay elsewhere, though that maybe was a surface thing. That there were different agendas. That there were different opinions. There was an unwillingness to humbly let go of personal visions for the sake of the gospel. And rather than standing together for the gospel, this church splintered. And some of you were here, some of you know more about that and went through the pain of that before we got here. But I began to become clear to me, and I became the target of the anger and displeasure of some. When that became clear to me, I said to the board on numerous occasions, 
this is not my church. This is not my church to hold on to. This is not about me. It can't be about me. And if I'm the wrong man to pastor this church, say the word and I'll walk away. If I'm the problem, say the word, I will walk away. I will not hold on to what is not mine. This belongs to Jesus. I am a man in deep need of God's grace. There is much that I haven't gotten right, much that I still don't get right. But I am confident of this, that in those early years, God granted me the grace and courage and wisdom to not cling to my agenda, my vision, to openly-handedly say, Jesus, this is yours. And I'm not going to claim that that's been something that I've done perfectly since. But in those early days, God gave me that grace to do that, to say, this is your church. This is about your mission, your vision, Lord. We are called as brothers and sisters in Christ to let go of things, to care for the interests of others, to pursue Christ for the sake of the gospel's advance, to stand together as one for the sake of his mission, to see men and women repent and believe, to see men and women enter into his kingdom people. And so I ask you, where are you, where am I, holding on to my own opinions, my own agenda, my own vision? Where is pride getting in the way of humbly, sacrificially loving others like Christ loved me? What do we need to let go of for the sake of the advance of the gospel, for the sake of his mission? For the sake of the mission he has given us, the reason we are here, Paul pleads with Judea and with Syntyche for their oneness. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion symbolizes a number of things. One, it reminds us of the cross and Jesus giving his body for us. And we lose something of the, the the, the illustrative power of this when we each eat from an individual little wafer and cup. But we break off a, one loaf. We, we, communion celebrates also our oneness in Christ. One loaf, one cup. Paul pleads with Judea and Syntyche for their oneness. Jesus cares deeply for our oneness. Our oneness at sunrise. Our oneness for the sake of the gospel, that we would stand firm in the Lord together for the gospel. And that will mean letting go of things for each one of us, for me. That it's not ours to control, that we need to seek Jesus' leading, and we need to choose to obey this call to oneness, to have the same mindset in the Lord, to have the same mindset as Christ. Brothers and sisters, this, this God's Word is practical. Daniel LaRusso in the Karate Kid didn't see the connection between the work he was doing and the karate he wanted to learn. But there was a deep connection. It was profoundly applicable. 
All that Paul has been saying to us, all that Jesus has been saying through Paul, through this letter, this call to unity, this call to fix our eyes on Jesus and, and to pursue the heavenly goal for the sake of the gospel, with the joy of heaven in mind, all that he has called us to do is fleshed out in really practical ways in our relationships with one another. And so will you with me say, Jesus, come, lead us. Heal us where there's brokenness. Guide us to oneness. Give us courage and humility to be faithful as your bride here at sunrise. May he so work. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word, this challenging word, this really practical word. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit you would work in us, that you would accomplish the oneness that you desire for us, the oneness that you died for, that we would be one with you and one with one another. And Lord, we want to recognize this morning that it's not simply oneness for the sake of oneness, but it's oneness for the sake of the gospel. Lord, you have planted us here. You've called us to mission to make you known, Jesus, and we want to be faithful in that. So come and have your way in us, Jesus. Use us, your bride, for your purposes. And we pray this in your name. Amen.